What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. With the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. So this one might feel like a bit of a sprint of an episode because I have a meeting in less than an hour. So let's see if we can do a solo podcast uh, abbreviated style. What is up, folks? I am super grateful to have you here for another episode of the Emulsion Podcast. Uh, To keep things rolling, today's beverage is going to just be good old tap water because I've had too much coffee today. (laughs) I've had, um, um, I do want to give a shout out though to um, a place out of Chicago called The Grand Mug. Uh, The owner of that spot sent me three bags of Ethiopian coffee. He's a listener of the podcast Mauro um, Roasted, different um, varietals of Ethiopian beans with different uh, kind of flavor notes. And this is actually the last bag. So Anna and I have kind of slammed through two of them. And this last one is uh, Ethiopia Halo Bariti Adisu Kidane. Um, and he roasted it really light so that all of the notes are still kind of intact. And yeah, I'm just a really big fan of Ethiopian coffee in general. We've been chemexing this and it's been lovely in the morning. Like I said, we've <laughs> been slamming it pretty hard because I will have my two cups in the morning. And Anna has actually, like, since drinking this, uh, asked for one and a half cups which is like a little bit more than what she usually has, which is great. And then I also had like half of a glass of cold brew today and I ran out of that. And then when Anna and I were on our walk, we stopped and got a Cortado. So I'm uh, very caffeinated at the moment, which might help with the speed at which this episode moves. Let's give a few Patreon shoutouts. I know I haven't been pushing it as heavily, uh, only because I know that people's financial situations have been impacted. And, you know, I'm super grateful to still have um, opportunities available to me. So it's it would make me feel horrible if me if I was making you feel financial pressure to continue to support me on Patreon. But um, Josh P. and the homie uh, Ashe S. are both uh, indebted. I feel indebted to them because they um, decided to uh, start supporting this month, which is amazing. Do I have an update? I have an update as part of my checklist. No. I mean, most of you kind of know what my state is right now. I can't cook for any events, which is a little unfortunate. I am able to turn up the burner on the content side of things, which helps. Um, But I'll get to more towards the end of the episode. I want to get into the stories now. So I want to start with the news about Floyd Cardoz. And this was a story that was truly like the first time during all of this developing um, I think I, cr- I created this as a bookmark March 26th, so that was just over a month ago, and it was where, it was like a turning point when I first saw industry folks talking about it more about the person than the than about the business. Does that make sense? Because Floyd is a titan for just New York City and Indian cuisine and, and, and 
like pioneering fusion, if that makes sense. And I, I wasn't super vocal about this news. I didn't tweet about it. And, you know, to be honest, it was a bit of a shock. It was like, whoa, this man passed away. He was so young. He was very, very impactful, especially for that generation. But I didn't want it to be like, oh, I'm sharing this piece and doing the thoughts and prayers thing. Because honestly, I didn't know that much about Chef Floyd. I haven't eaten at his restaurants. I've never cooked any of his recipes. And I honestly thought that there were people in his circle, Pete Wells being one of them, and he's the author of this piece that's in the show notes, that I think was able to be much more thoughtful in speaking on him and this topic in general than than I could have been. So I've left that piece in the show notes. Like I said, I would encourage you to read it, to remember him with so many people being affected by this. I, I also don't want it to be like, oh, you only send well wishes to this guy because he was famous, right? Because it's terrifying to see the numbers for what they are affecting so many people. And I, you know, I don't want it to be like, oh, you only speak up when it's uh, someone in the limelight. So to get a few of the legacy pieces from Chef Floyd, I am going to read a little bit here. So, quote, Mr. Cardoz, who died on Tuesday of the coronavirus, made challenging things look easy. Most impressively, he built his own kitchen language from elements of his childhood and early professional training in India. His labor in precise, demanding Swiss kitchens, the lessons in juxtaposing ideas from different cuisines that he imbibed under Greg Kunz at Les Spanis, and his advice as an immigrant who survived and ultimately thrived in New York City. Continuing on, quote, New York had seen fancy, expensive Indian restaurants before Tabla and Bread Bar, but the cooking at most of them seemed featureless, generic, next to Mr. Cardoza's flights of creativity. Some of the little snacks I had at Bread Bar, things that would have been forgettable filler on anybody else's menu, have stayed with me for years. The naan with needles of rosemary baked into the dough, the popcorn tossed with hot ghee and chopped masala, the sandwich of pulled lamb and soft potatoes turned into an intensely turned intensely yellow by mustard seeds, end quote. And I think... As someone who was able to enjoy the fruits of Chef Floyd's labor, like I'm, I'm super happy that Pete Wells was able to put this out, and you know, my, my my heart truly goes out to, you know, his inner circle and everybody that was affected by his passing. So I did want to cover that, um, just a little bit more in depth when I had some time to kind of sit on it and and give more thoughts. In a very vulnerable and impactful piece, we have to talk about another story out of New York City. Um, Gabriel Hamilton, the chef of Prune, wrote a piece basically questioning if after 20 years of the restaurant life, does the world need it anymore? And I think this is this so encap- encapsulates how thousands of people are, are feeling and thinking. And I think she's such a prolific writer as well as a great chef and a leader and has been in the industry longer than so many of us. And as you can hopefully see from the several quotes I'm about to read, she does this business. She's in this industry because she loves it. And she's also immensely practical, which I certainly think we need in this time. There's a lot of people who are jumping the gun or, you know, pontificating and not getting to the root of things, which I think she, she, she does in this piece, which is amazing. Um, and plus I want to read a lot of this because this is the second New York times article. And for some reason, notion saved the full piece instead of keeping it behind a paywall. So let's get into it. And maybe there is something with New York times and their paywall right now, because I haven't had issues accessing their stuff, which is normally frustrating during my research for this show. So quote, she talks about, you know, when she got the news that the dining in would have to stop. And she says, quote, by the time 
the all-staff meeting after brunch that day, I knew I was right. After a couple of weeks of watching the daily sales dwindle, a $12,000 Saturday to a $4,000 Monday to a $2,000 Thursday, it was a relief to decide to pull the parachute cord. I didn't I didn't want to have waited so long, didn't want to crash into the trees. Our sous chef FaceTimed in, as did our lead line cook, while nearly everyone else gathered in the dining room. I looked everybody in the eye and said, I've decided not to wait to see what will happen. I encourage you to call the first call first thing in the morning tomorrow for unemployment, and you have a week's paycheck from me coming. End quote. Continuing on. She says, quote, it turned out that abruptly closing a restaurant is a week-long full-time job. I was bombarded with an astonishing volume of texts. The phone rang throughout the day, overwhelmingly well-wishers and regretful cancellations. But there was a woman who apparently hadn't followed the coronavirus news. She cut me off in the middle of my greeting with, yeah, you guys open for brunch? And then she hung up before I could even finish saying, take care out there. This one's going to be a long one. Ready? Quote, like most chefs who own these small restaurants that have now proliferated across the whole city, I've been driven by the sensory, the human, the poetic, and the profane, not by money or thirst to expand. Even after seven nights a week for two decades, I'm still stopped in my tracks every time my bartender snap those metal lids onto the cocktail shakers and start rattling the ice like maracas. I still close my eyes for a second, taking a deep inhale every time the salted pistachios are set afire with Reiki, setting their anise scent through the dining room. I still thrill when the four top at table nine are talking to one another so contentedly that they don't notice that the last diners lingering in the cocoon of the wine and the last few shards of dark chocolate we've put down with their check. Even though I can't quite take part in it myself, I'm the boss who must remain a little aloof from the crew, I still I still quietly thrum with satisfaction when the quote-unquote kids are chattering away and hugging one another in their hellos and how are yous in the hallway as they get ready for their shifts. But the first time you cut a payroll check, you understand quite bluntly that poetic notions aside, you are running a business, and the crew of knuckleheads you adore are counting on you for their livelihood. In the beginning, I was closed on Mondays, ran only six dinner shifts, and paid myself $425 a week. I got a very positive review in the New York Times, and thereafter we were packed. When I added the seventh dinner in 2000, I was able to hire a full-time sous chef. End quote. I'm going to keep reading, folks. Quote, the line of credit that I thought would be so easy to acquire turned out to be one long week of harshly busy signals before I was able to apply on March 25th. I was turned down a week later on April 1st because of inadequate business and personal cash flow. I howled with laughter over the phone at the underwriter and his explanation. Everything was uphill. 21 days after we closed, Ashley still hadn't been able to reach unemployment. They now had a year... They had now had a new system to handle the overload of calls. You call based on the first letter of your last name, and her next possible day would be a Thursday. If she didn't get through, she would have to wait until the next day allotted for all of the M's in the city. And I believe Ashley is a business partner, wife, question mark. It's in there. Quote, Ashley texted me from home that our dog was limping severely. This was the scenario that made me sweat, a medical emergency. We could live for a month on what was in the freezer, and I had a credit card that still had a $13,000 spending limit, but what if we got hurt somehow and needed serious medical care? Neither of us was insured. My kids are covered under their father's policy, but there was no safety net for us. Among us chefs, there have been a hundred jokes over the last decade about our medical and veterinary backup plans. Given our latex gloves and razor-sharp knives and our spotless stainless steel prep tables, but my sense of humor in that moment had come to a hard summon end quote that's a very harsh reality for a lot of people even my company doesn't do uh health insurance for our employees we can't offer it as a benefit 
continuing on, quote, it would be nigh impossible for me in the context of a pandemic to argue for the necessity of my existence. And this is talking about her restaurant. Do my sweetbreads and my Parmesan omelet count as essential at this time? In economic terms, I don't think I could even argue that prune matters anymore. In a neighborhood in a city now fully saturated with restaurants much like mine, many of them better than mine, some of which have expanded to employ as many as 100 people, not just cooks and servers and bartenders, but also human resource directors and cookbook ghostwriters. I'm not going to suddenly start arguing the merits of my restaurant as a vital part of a quote-unquote industry, or that I helped to make up 2% of the U.S. gross domestic product, or that I should have should be helped out by our government because I am one of those who employ nearly 12 million Americans in the workforce. But those seem to be the only persuasive terms. With my banks, my insurers, my industry lobbyists, and legislators, I have to hope, though, that we matter in some other alternative economy, that we are still a thread in the fabric that might unravel if you yanked us from the weave. Everybody's saying that restaurants won't make it back, that we won't survive. I imagine this is at least partially true. Not all of us will make it, and not all of us will perish. But I can't easily discern the determining factors, even though thinking about which restaurants will survive and why has become an obsession these past weeks. What delusional mindset am I in that I just do not feel this is the end, that I find myself convinced that this is only a pause, if I want to be, if even if I want it to be? I don't carry investor debt. My vendors trust me. If my building's co-op evicted me, they would have a beast of a time getting a new tenant to replace me. End quote. Quote, it gets so confusing. Restaurant operators had already become oddly cagey and quick to display a false front with each other. You asked, how's business? And the answer was always, yeah, great, best quarter we've had. But then the coronavirus hits and these same restaurant owners rush to the public square yelling, fire, fire. They now realize that they have also been operating under razor-thin margins it instantly turns 180 degrees. Even famous, successful chefs, owners of empires, those with supremely wealthy investors upon whom you imagine they would call for capital should they need it, now openly describe in technical detail with explicit data how, to, how dire a position they are in. The sad testimony gushes out, confirming everything that used to be so convincingly denied. The concerns before coronavirus are still universal. The restaurant, as we know it, is no longer viable on its own. You can't have tipped employees making $45 an hour while line cooks make 15 You can't buy a $3 can of cheap beer at a dive bar in the East Village if the dive bar is actually paying $18,000 a month, month in rent, $30,000 a month in payroll. It would have to cost $10. I can't keep ho- hosing down the saute corner myself just to have enough money to repair the ripped awning. Prune is in the East Village because we've lived in the East Village for more than 30 years. I moved here because it's where you could get an apartment for $450 a month. In 1999, when I opened Prune, I still woke each morning to roosters crowing from atop the tenant's tenement building down the block, which is now a steel and glass tower. A less than 500 square foot studio apartment rents for $3,810 a month, almost 10 times as much as she used to pay, end quote. That last part was obviously me, not her quote. But yeah, I think that that's, that that's like, things have changed on, on all fronts. And I think that when you keep things up, but the everything else around you is changing, it comes out in moments like this, right? Quote, for the past 10 years, I've been staring wide-eyed and with alarms as the sweet, gentle citizen restaurant transformed into an unruly, colossal beast. The food world got stranger and weirder to me right while I was deep in it. The waiter became the server, the restaurant business became the hospitality industry, and what used to be the customer became the guest. And what was once your personality became your brand. Small acts of kindness and the way you used to always have of sharing your talents and looking out for others became things to monetize. End quote. I think that's very important because a lot of people feel that way. This is my last quote, I promise. I know that was a lot of reading. 
quote, I cannot see myself excitedly daydreaming about the third-party delivery ticket screen I will read orders from all evening. I cannot see myself sketching doodles on the to-go boxes I will pack my food into so that I can send it out into the night anonymously, hoping the poor delivery guy does a good job and stays safe. I don't think I can sit around dreaming up menus and cocktails and fantasizing about what will be on my playlist just to create something that people will order and receive and consume via an app. I started my restaurant as a place for people to talk to one another with a very decent but affordable glass of wine and an expertly prepared plate of simple braised lamb shoulder on the table to keep the conversation flowing, and it ran as long as I could. If this kind of place is not relevant to society, then we should become extinct. extinct. End quote. That is a mic drop moment, folks. That is like, you know, an industry titan claiming that, you know, it might be over. And I think... It raises a lot of good points. I think that it is it is a time to pause and reflect. I don't think that this is a time when we should think that things should, oh, just go back to the way things were. Um, it's definitely like, you know, the, the moments of being able to get through the airport super speedy before 2001, right? Um, things are all going to change, but it doesn't mean that it has to be completely over, Right. And I think because we're able to set such inherent value in experiences like this, I don't think they're going to go away. I think how they look will change. And if you have thoughts on this, I would love to share to hear them. All right. This one was a big rustler, a big feather fluffer. This one definitely made the rounds on my Twitter feed. It seems like everyone was retweeting and commenting about this. And this started with a tweet from a one Thomas Keller. Quote, Honored at real Donald Trump asked me and Daniel Belude and Wolfgang Puck and John George to join the White House Great American Economic Revival Industry Group, proud to work together towards a strategy where the safety of Americans is top of mind in conjunction towards economic revitalization. So that was on April 15th, and then on April 16th, after getting a ton of backlash, he responded. And I'm going to open this up to read you everything. Let's see what we got here. Oh, just opened up his Twitter account. I want the tweet. Dang it. There we go. Thomas Keller says, Since we have been hit with this global pandemic and impacting the health and well-being of countless lives, we have worked tirelessly at feeding our communities, our neighbors, and our colleagues. I, with many of my colleagues, have decided to fight to attempt to save our industry as a whole. While we may be fighting for different things, it's all for one goal. Whether the broken PPP, the need for business insurance relief, or the unprecedented economic hardship, each issue is dire. More than 15 million people's livelihoods are at stake right now. Shame on those who think working with the federal government is reprehensible. This is not a partisan issue. Millions are struggling to put a meal on their table. I stand proudly among some of the great thought leaders of today, Tim Cook, Jeff Bezos, a couple more. Um, I urge all haters and cynics to stop and join meaningful actions. Shout less, act more. And a bunch of hashtags. So if you want to read some truly savage comments, people expressing their disappointment in all of this, the tweet is, of course, linked up below. But I wanted to get into some bigger picture conversations here and make sure that we are truly judging on the right things. This might honestly be a point in our little digital relationship together where some of you disagree with what I'm about to say. And if that's the case, I would love to start a conversation because I think that's when things get hashed out. Um, I'm always available on Twitter. Most of you know that. So Chef Keller mentioned Daniel Balud and Wolfgang Puck and John George basically because they're all in the same quote unquote sector of the industry, right? They have multiple restaurants. They're TV personalities. They have awards. They have high-end spots and casual spots. Most of them have like the Vegas restaurant, right? But in addition to all of that, 
there are a few other people that are on that Great American Economic Revival Industry Group, and they run very different places, right? So um, you have uh, Chris Kemjinski from McDonald's. Uh, you have Gene Lee Jr. from Darden Restaurant, so that's like uh, Olive Garden and Red Lobster. You have uh, James Quincy from Coca-Cola, Dan Cathy from Chick-fil-A, Subway, Yum Brands, Papa John's, Wendy's, Waffle House, Starbucks, M Crowd Restaurant, Jimmy John's founder, Kraft. Like, are most of these people male? Is there a lack of diversity? Absolutely. But... If Trump is the one putting this together, that shouldn't be that big of a surprise, right? The dude loves his fast food. If anything, it's a larger discussion of, like, are these people truly going to put things in place to make it harder for minority-owned businesses to survive? Genuine question. Or is this a case of, like, maybe keep your enemies close, right? If Thomas Keller wants to make changes happen on the federal level, he's better off being on this board and adding his two cents there in that room. Right. So for all of the people calling for smaller restaurants and diverse owners to be part of this conversation, it's bigger than that, in my opinion. I honestly don't think it's anything against smaller restaurants or people who are cooking different food than what Daniel Balud is cooking in his French bistros. Right. It's just the fact that this board of people. Collectively, they have hundreds of franchises. They serve thousands of meals a day. And they're surrounded by Operation Ninjas, who are going to be the ones driving forward the systems that the smaller places will then integrate into their HACCP plans, right? So is there a chance that the people on the board will look out for themselves and other businesses that look like theirs? Absolutely. There's, of course, a chance that that will happen. But I refuse to believe that the people on this board are getting a pass and access to unlimited capital, right? Just because you're on this board, that means you're going to survive and everybody else is not. Because the board is too small. There's like 15 people on this board. It's not that that makes up like the the largest majority of restaurants in the US, right? So as we saw with the Gabriel Hamilton piece, it's affecting everyone. The French Laundry isn't open right now. And like, is Trump giving Thomas Keller a pass to open French Laundry and other tasting menus that aren't run by white men can't open? No. So you also look at Ad Hoc, which is another restaurant that he has. Is his like it's his casual seasonal family style fried chicken place down the street. They're doing takeout orders. So you can't say that the treatment of the businesses is different. It's just a case of like Trump choosing who he wants to choose because he is how he is. What I explained to a friend of mine with this whole thing goes along these lines. French Laundry when I was there, was doing a million dollars in revenue a month. Jimmy John's, another company that's on this board, their annual revenue in 2019 was $2.1 billion. The conversations that are happening at this level is drastically different than the conversation that my business partner and I are having as a tiny five-person event production company or the taco place down the street or the standalone pho shop or the diner right? We're not talking about the same problems. Yes, we're all concerned about money and safety, but the scale and the complexities of both are just different. So the people that are up in arms about not being able to drive businesses have so many reasons to be upset, right? Delivery companies taking double-digit percent 
of order totals, the president of our country actively dissuading people from going to restaurants, the payroll protection loans taking forever to process. I get it. But you chose to be small. And I need to be very, I, I, I don't, I, I want to be firm with that, but I also want to tiptoe around it a little bit because I don't want it to get taken out of context. I think there's a lot of shit talking with, I'm never going to expand and I'm proud that I'm in service every night at my restaurant. And then that instantly flips and crumbles when that's literally outlawed at the federal level. And I want that to like, Gabriel Hamilton said it better than I can. But we've been talking about this literally since I started this podcast. The restaurant industry is a razor-thin margin industry for so many people. Not for everybody, but for so many. And where it's been easier than ever to launch new concepts, to hire people, to do new menus that are globally influenced because you can flip through Instagram and get inspiration at a, at a, at a hat drop. It's just been growing faster than what the demand can keep up with. I'm not saying that people should suffer. I'm not saying that the girl who just graduated culinary school and is struggling to pay back loans deserves to not have a paycheck because she decided to work at a place that can't operate at their normal levels right now and they cut her hours, right? Or the 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 dude who just sold everything to move to Asia to do an internship and now that guy is stuck in Asia because the restaurant that he thought he was going to work at for the next three months is now closed. Those stories suck. And they're heartbreaking because so much is not in your control with situations like that. And I talk a lot about how to best use this time in my last interview podcast with Ray DeLucci, but I'm genuinely curious to hear about, I want the statistic of the number of people who had businesses that basically went into debt after three weeks of being closed and who after six weeks without government assistance are forced to go under. That's, that was not a healthy business from the jump right? The people who have three maxed out credit cards that were artificially propping up their businesses before this whole thing went down. And then this was almost like the match that lit their entire gasoline patch on fire, right? And I need to add this as a disclaimer. I don't have a restaurant. Most of you know that. That doesn't change the fact that I love restaurants. I document my experiences and I put the videos on YouTube like a weirdo because I love restaurants. And I chose to and loved working in restaurants for over eight years. But when I moved back to the U.S., I actively chose to not get a restaurant job because I saw from case study after case study that the numbers are incredibly hard to make work in your favor. And regardless of your love for bringing people together, for creating dishes, to see the look on people's faces when they eat something delicious, the camaraderie with the team, like whatever floats your boat, in sticking with this tough industry. If money coming in is not greater than money going out, it's incredibly dicey. And I saw what happens when things need to get cut because of costs, right? You you change for work in dry storage because there isn't a locker room. Or the roots of endives become salad for staff meal. There's no health insurance. You get 10 days of vacation a year. Not to mention basically never putting money aside for a rainy day for the business. I mean, owners can't, right? If you can't give your, if you can't uh, pay your employees health insurance premiums, how are you expected to save for a future downturn in the economy? For some reason, it's implied that if your place is doing well, 
you're stupid if you don't open another one, as opposed to saving money or adding benefits for your staff. Have you folks heard the story about Bill Gates at Microsoft? I want to share it here. He was facing a lot of investor pressure in the early days, and he made the decision to save up a year's worth of payroll expenses for the company. So if shit really hit the fan, he would be able to pay everyone their salaries for a year and not worry about his products making money. And that only comes, like some of you are thinking like that's completely impossible, but in true fashion, like that only comes from building profit margins into your costs. And I haven't seen a single restaurateur come out and say that they've got enough built up to pay their payroll for six months, right? I don't know. Has anybody seen a story like that where they're like, oh, so-and-so is totally fine because they have this great savings uh, built up? I haven't seen it. That's just for six months. It's not a year like this Jeff Bezos story. And I understand they're different industries, but you understand what I'm trying to say. It's not built into our culture as business people to save for these kinds of downturns. It's the same story with Jeff Bezos, right? Like his actual salary is something like $81,000, I think, which is literally the lowest that he can legally get paid from like a IRS perspective. And then his billions of dollars that he's worth on paper, quote, quote unquote, is his shares of Amazon that he owns. So when you get on that level of operating a business, how you work changes. And I just want to like asterisk that. Also, I need to add here, I'm commending every single meal that Jose Andres has served, not just during this crisis, but during the natural disasters and serving impoverished communities. He is a true hero, right? And it's it's selfless and it's commendable and it's amazing what he's doing in this chapter of his career. Like, well-deserved round of applause for him and his team. But we need to stop the free meal shaming. That was a huge standout for me reading the comments of this Twitter post. People being like, look, Jose Andres is serving all of these meals. Why isn't he on this board, right? How many meals have you served, Thomas Keller? Hey, stop that, right? Tell me you've seen your $1 million a month restaurant shut down completely and you're also dealing with 40 to 90% decreases in your eight other businesses. Tell me that you're not in crisis mode to protect and run your restaurant group, not channeling those valuable resources elsewhere. And I'm not saying that health, like feeding healthcare workers, uh, people who can't make their paychecks, who are going into debt, who are getting like foreclosed on their homes, don't deserve help. But it's like, I don't want us to obligate people to do it in order to get social approval. Does that make sense? Um, just if you're literally better off partnering with the Red Cross and taking sponsorship money from Microsoft to pay your staff to pivot from doing the tasting menu to making meals for healthcare workers, that's amazing. But do not guilt chefs into putting their teams on the line and their businesses in jeopardy to donate meals when they're not even sure if they can make the next payroll. I just think we need to take all of these things on a case-by-case basis and stop trying to paint with such a broad brush while all the pieces are still moving. So to round off here, should this panel be more diverse? Yes. It sucks to see our president only wanting to listen to white males. It's not full representation. It's same not just with like gender and ethnicity, but with the sizes of businesses. I don't think that... like. There, uh, people that are running single standalone places are represented in this board. I don't think that that's the case. Do I think that 
the way that things are laid out jives much more with the purpose of what they're wanting to drive forward, yes. And then on another hand, you have David Chang putting out just as many valuable resources and asking questions of professionals and consulting with industry experts. But then Eater, for some reason, puts this piece from Eric Rivera on blast when he says that what David Chang is doing is not enough. I don't freaking understand it, folks, right? Like, Uber is laying off 20% of their workforce, and airlines stopped booking middle seats. So even if we go back to fully booked flights, quote-unquote, they're only going to make two-thirds of their revenue. And cruise lines are basically in need of a bailout. And you're going to make celebrity chefs the bad guys here? It's just, it's not just us, folks. The whole world is being affected. And he's got this quip in this piece that he put out saying, quote, Many chefs at this level have licensing deals with hotels, merchandise, luxury car brand deals, millionaire and or billionaire investors, and cookbook deals, end quote. My question to that is, do you really think that those streams of revenue are still going to be pumping in the dollars? No way, dude. They're, these hotels that they have deals with saw decreases in bookings up to 90%. Families are not buying new sets of cookware with so-and-so's face on the box. They're cooking at home with what they already have. These luxury car brands that previously gave celebrity chefs deals aren't going to be selling enough cars over the next 12 months to sponsor these chefs. So those deals are going to get cut. And millionaire investors are going to have way more attractive investment opportunities during this time than a restaurant. And so they're going to take their money somewhere else. And cook to cookbook deals are notoriously low margin anyways. Like this is not something to be bringing up as like, oh, well, he's fine because he's got a cookbook. It's a nice bonus, if anything. Please, just be careful when you're throwing stones right now, we are not even close to being out of the woods. And I think it's naive at best to think that these celebrity chefs don't see this playing out negatively in their future as well. Like they're trying to protect themselves for the future. I just think that it's so common during these times when like you throw the baby out with the bathwater because you think that like we should just burn it all down, right? And I, I think that's so unproductive. Because like, think about it you come up with this dilemma of like, do I furlough my, like, do I, do I, um, ask my staff to take time off and collect unemployment? And like, there's a quip in that article about like, oh, unemployment is hard to get right now. It's because everybody is affected. It's not like, oh, we're actively getting discriminated against because we're in the hospitality industry. It's because there's so many people (laughs) that the demand is too high and the systems are outdated. At this stage in the game, I think safety is the name of the game. And no amount of loans are going to make your restaurant full again if we don't nail the new societal norms that need to be in place for businesses. So continuing to ask for handouts and payroll dollars instead of thinking bigger picture is a zero-sum game, in my opinion. Yes, you as a business might be able to stay afloat, but it's the equivalent of bucketing out water as opposed to sealing the holes. As per usual, please let me know your thoughts in the comments or tweet at me. Like, I know this, as I said, like, your situation is different than Thomas Keller's situation. And my situation is different than your situation. And Thomas Keller's situation is different than, what's his name, who owns Jimmy John's, right? But that's the point. 
In hopes of not being a complete Eeyore in this episode, this feels very negative as a rational optimist. I I, I attempt to be as optimistic as possible. I'm going to cover two more stories that are semi-related. Heads up, they are kind of negative, but I wanted to share them because they both caught my eye. Um, I also just think that like during this time of like history is being made right now and it helps so much to learn from history. And so as we're in this moment, I think it's, we're going to have a lot of great takeaways from this. So this piece from Eater is called how to close a restaurant quote. Eventually, tragically, each of our restaurants came to the point in its life cycle where we no longer had anything to give. I should, sorry, end quote. I'm going to give some context here. This is um, from, let's see, it is uh, Alex Pamuli, the director of finance at Sea Creatures in Seattle. Uh, She recently sold Mean Sandwich, which she co-owned with her husband, Kevin. And this is talking about um, closing restaurants on the East Coast and the West Coast. So back to my quote. We were tapped. I was so used to running on fumes, digging deep and slogging through, but I eventually reached my limit. Three years into our first restaurant, 30 acres in Jersey City, New Jersey, I gave birth to a perfect yet massively colicky baby girl. My and Kevin dream, Kevin's dreams of opening restaurants together started to crumble. Despite my best efforts, the kitchen was simply too loud and hot to carry Viv on my back while I expoed the pass. Now here I was sitting at home with a crying baby while my husband worked endless hours at the restaurant to color, cover both of our hours. As the months went on and business naturally slowed, cash became tighter and the scale shifted. The negatives started outweighing the positives and it became painfully clear that it was time to move on. We found a buyer through a friend and spent a year negotiating the sale. And then from here, it kind of lays out the steps of closing a restaurant. I'm going to read those quick and then I'm going to go into some of the specifics. So the headers are know when to call it quits, list your business for sale, set a make it or break it up date. Uh, It's a make it or break it date, plan the ending, close, tie up loose ends, grieve, and then get back to work. So speaking from the um, know when to call it quits section, which I think can be incredibly contextual for people right now. Quote, I don't say this lightly. This is by far the hardest step. It means facing the fact that this thing you've just dreamed of, that you've spent so many hours building and loving, just isn't working out. You admit to yourself that you're not happy at work and it's not going to get any better. If it helps, I'll let you in on something I've learned. Dreams can die. It's okay. You will not die just because your dream has. There will be more. It just takes time. Often, your dreams will change. Mine definitely did. As I get older, I find the financial security and time with my family are necessary for my happiness. Growing these things puts limits on what risks I will take, but it also helps me put my dreams into focus, because I know what I want and it has allowed me to think more creatively. I've learned that it's important to separate my dreams from earning potential. When you tie the two together, as I always have, you run the risk of running a very one-dimensional life. I have never found the old adage that if you do what you love for a living, you'll never work a day in your life to be true. Instead, I just find the very process of trying to make money doing what I love robs it of its value. When I do what I love for a living, it means I never stop working, end quote. This next point is um, from the set a make it or break it date. Quote, you've now accepted and started preparing for the likelihood of closure. This is the time to reflect on how exactly you've failed. I don't mean mulling over the details of your mistakes yet, but rather, what metric are you using to judge your failure? Is it money? Awards? Popularity? What is the thing that you need and don't have? 
To put it more positively, is there one specific thing that, if it did change, would keep the spark of faith alive? If it exists, identify what it is, and then set a date that it needs to happen by. Make it something very concrete and reasonable, and don't be easy on yourself. Then, put everything you have into making it happen. Whatever fumes are in the tank, use them. Tell your family that you will not see them until the date you've set, and warn your employees that it's crunch time. Do every single thing that you can do to afford to do and haven't done yet. This is it. End quote. And, you know, obviously there is a asterisk, asterisk that I need to add here where I'm not advising you to do anything that is currently illegal based on your state's guidelines or, you know, burn yourself out completely during this time because it is a, it is a weird time. And this was posted like before all of this started um, going, going crazy. But um, I think that's like, it's incredible clarity that I don't think a lot of people put in place in their lives. And I think that if the, you're going to have any time to reflect on what those goals are for yourself, it's now. And conversely, if you can't come up with anything, it's difficult to justify that effort. Now I'm going to speak from plan the ending. Quote, I can't tell you when to tell your employees. In a small business, these relationships are extremely personal. You should never wait until the last minute. Give them two weeks notice at a minimum. You depend on your employees' work as much as they depend on their paycheck, and most of them will absolutely start looking for work the second you tell them they're, you're closing, as they should. If you know this to not be the case, if these people, if these are people you have worked with for years and whom you consider family, as I did in my business, tell them as soon as possible. Tell them the truth and tell them the day that you expect that they will be out of work. Promise them that you will do whatever it takes to make sure they have a paycheck until then. Ask them as a favor to stay on until the end, but tell them you will love them even if they don't. Remember, this was your choice to open a restaurant, and it's your mess to clean up. You are not entitled to someone else's labor. End quote. I love that quote. That's great. This is, uh, this is the after the, f- the fact. This is the get back to work section. Quote, take stock of everything you've learned and set some goals for what you want to be different in your life. If you have debt left over from your restaurant, we definitely do. Set a goal of when you want to pay it off and come up with a plan to do so. Talk to new and different kinds of people about their dreams and how they've achieved them. Try things out. End quote. And as far as my opinion goes, like you should read this whole thing, especially if this is like you can empathize a little bit with the situation, but I've obviously not been in this boat. I've never sold a restaurant before. I certainly enjoy uh, reading the saga for what it is, but this is one of those I don't need, I don't know who needs to hear this, but kind of like reasons for me covering this on the podcast. Um, If you've got stories like this, please share them. I think there's so much to be learned, especially because these decisions and these chapters are so tied to identities. And I think that there's such a fascinating psychological element to it. And it's like, right, like it's not just a financial transaction or an exchange of assets, like uh, like selling a house, right? Like if you sold a house that you used as like a rental property uh, and other people lived in it, you don't really have that kind of a connection to it. And you just see it as like, oh, my house sold. But like when it's a restaurant and there are people involved, it's a different story. And I hope you enjoyed that. It's also important because it's like it's close to home. Their business was here in Seattle. Next up, in a wowza piece that I didn't see coming, Aviary and The Office, the luxury cocktail bars in New York from the Alinea team, are permanently closing. And I never got to go, which is very sad. Quote, Alinea co-founder and restaurateur Nick Kakonis confirms the news with Eater, 
noting that a decision the decision was not related to the pandemic. The two bars, which were located inside the high-end Mandarin Oriental Hotel at Columbus Circle, were already scheduled to shut down on April 15th, a decision made before the crisis, Kokona says. Quote, the hotel did not respond to requests for comments on this story. Kokonis de- declined to provide further details on the closure, but says that the hotel would be introducing new businesses in the space in due course. Quote, the closings meant that the renowned Alinea would no longer have a presence in New York City, at least for some time. That was their only outpost. Kokonis says he wants the group to open business in the city again one day, but obviously all such plans are in flux given what's going on. End quote. And like I said in the beginning there, I had a reservation at La Bernadine last summer in New York, and I wanted to get a drink before that dinner. And I went up the elevator in the Mandarin Oriental, and they basically couldn't get me a seat in the aviary. So even though I tried, unfortunately, they were just too popular. So on the bright side, I never would have had that amazing experience at per- in the salon at per se had I gotten turned away, which is just a few doors down in Columbus Circle there. So Overall, I think a lot of people were concerned that this is like a bad look for Alinea. Yes and no. Like with these partnerships between brands, you and I don't know what's happening under the hood. Was the Mandarin Oriental way too overextended? Was the lease way too expensive for it to be advantageous for the Alinea guys? Were they butting heads on creative direction or scaling or profitability? No one knows. I'm certainly bullish on Alinea doing some sort of New York City outpost. I think it makes much more sense for them to do something there than to expand to California. I can also see them doing something in uh, D.C. if we are going to keep things in those kind of Michelin-qualified cities. But yeah, I'm happy to hear it wasn't because of the Roni situation exclusively, but I see that how that could have completely played a factor if they started to see sales declining. Next up, a piece for all you number nerds out there like me. I'm going to link it up in the show notes if you want to read it. Um, it's about a place in um, Boston called Maymay. Quote, on Monday night, Irene Lee, the six-time James Beard o- nominated chef and owner of Boston's Maymay restaurant, did something few business owners would ever even consider. In front of an audience of more than 100 people, she opened up her books, quite literally, and went over her 2019 profit and loss statement. Last year, the critically acclaimed Chinese-American 35-seat counter-service restaurant that Lee started with her brother and sister as a food truck in 2012 pulled in a net income of $22,116, or 1.8% of total annual income of $1.2 million. End quote. Let that sink in, folks. You do $1.2 million in sales, and you make $22,000 of profit. Um... Let's see. Quote, take sticker shock. When you're paying $10 for avocado toast, for example, that $10 doesn't just cover the cost of ingredients. That price tag is covering all of the costs diners may not think about. Labor, rent, the toilet paper in the bathroom, all of the invisible things restaurants aren't directly charging you for. Um, Do I think everybody should do this? No. I think you will sometimes see the reverse effect if anonymous user 123 on the internet thinks that you're making more money than they think that you should, and you'll get these negative reactions for no good reason. I think, if anything, I think this is valuable because the knowledge will make it so that the price raises in future times are justified instead of questioned. 
because we start to kind of adopt this culture of people understanding the costs involved. And I think if anything, these in-person dining experiences will completely like everyone's going to get it. Everyone's going to be like, I'm so grateful that I can be here in person that the price will be justified. I just, I, I hope that that's the case. Um, and if you kind of want uh, more knowledge on finances in general and turnover and industry averages, um, you should read this story because I think it's very interesting. And I like, I, like I said, I'm a number nerd, so I like seeing all of this stuff come out. Okay, last up, industry side. I want to quickly skim a piece that friend of the show Chris Hill put out today, and he tagged me in Twitter about it, and it's called How We're Really Going to Save the Restaurant Industry. So let's open it and read it together live. Not the whole thing, obviously. Quote, the humming of the hood in the kitchen before service starts, pre-shift meetings, family meals, and shift drinks. Chatter of the waste staffs talking through specials with each other, readying themselves for the first two top of the night. Sizzling hotter-than-hell saute pans, convection ovens breathing hot air and hearing behind for what might be the last time of the night. Clanking silverware, plates, pots, pans, and glasses, along with the swooshing of the dish machine cleaning another load of much-needed plates that are now running low on the kitchen line. The seemingly choreographed moves of a well-run kitchen bar or service staff never ceases to amaze me, as the printer shows no sign of slowing down. The energy of the organized chaos of a full dining room on a Friday night, it's a rush unlike any other. Talks about success, asks the question, what will save the restaurant industry? And he says, it's not the government or the banks or even a couple of weeks worth of adapting one's business in order to stay afloat. These are all great and will be essential for many businesses, but they aren't enough. It's you. It's me. It's the people who you spend more time with than your family. It's the one whom you've slogged through the trenches and gone to battle with. These are the people we're relying on to save the industry. Quote, if anyone is up for the task of saving the entire industry, it's a cohort of proud, hardworking, passionate, and loyal people who have one important thing in common. They've chosen to spend their lives about giving to others. That's what the hospitality industry is all about. And he basically talks about taking it one day at a time. Semi-clickbaity, not clickbaity, but like, it's a, it's a, it's a rallying cry, right? Like, it's, it, it feels good, yes, but as I'm kind of like trying to tie this whole episode of resources and things I've been reading and how I've been processing all of this with a bow, I think that it needs to come. I mean, my biggest priority um, for our industry, there's people much smarter than us and they're working extremely hard on things like vaccines and um, different therapies to make sure that um, people can get well faster, herd immunity, all of those things. What we need to focus on and should be priority number one, is when my aunt asks, is it safe to go there? What are we going to say? And I think that's what we need to be pondering and solving for. We need to be solving for, is it safe to be working there? Is it safe to go eat there? How does dining room layouts change? What do the HACCP plan updates look like? How do we interact with purveyors who have also been interacting with different restaurants all day? How do we make our guests feel safe? All of these questions are like super, super top of mind. Yes, it is going to be all of us coming together, but we need to make sure that it's a green light go ahead, even though 
during certain times it might seem like a bunch of like vanguard you know like weirdos you know doing their best so those are my thoughts thanks for thanks for that piece chris that's a great piece I want to get in direct answer. I don't remember if that normally comes before or after non-industry stories. Um, first non-industry story is because of quarantine, I bought Pokemon Sword. And I've been playing it, and I just got the Dragon Badge. So that's all of the Dragon, uh, all of the Gym Badges completed. Um, so now I'm going to spend a lot of time kind of just developing my team a little bit. I beat my, I beat the the Cup. I haven't beaten the official last guy leon the champion i haven't beaten him yet um probably will tonight or tomorrow but yeah it's been very fun a lot of nostalgia it's way different mechanically than pokemon go which is really really nice because um i've also been battling a lot in pokemon go um very excited for the new season of that to start um and then the second piece that is you know more for people <laughs> this is much more like holistic life news um i'm reading a book right now by david brooks it's called the second mountain subtitled the quest for a moral life and it's the first time it, I, I literally needed to get like five minutes into the introduction and i was hooked and i i don't remember exactly who recommended this um but i'm very very glad that i downloaded it and that i'm consuming it because the basic story is what I'm going through right now, right? So the idea is there's two mountains that you overcome in your professional life. The first one is all about skills and industry know-how and your resume and how good you can be at your job with speed and skills and tips and tricks. The second mountain that you climb in your professional life is all about purpose and community and sharing and teaching and legacy, building something bigger than yourself right? But in that visual, to get from the first mountain to the second mountain, you have to go into the valley. And in the valley is where you like, you break down your own walls, and you learn about yourself, and you struggle again, because you're trying to get up another mountain. And I absolutely, that resonates a lot with me right now. And so I'm really enjoying it. I think that if you're in a position where you're currently kind of like, contemplating life and your choices and your goals and your strategic decision and your direction overall, um, this might help, especially if you are to a point now where you've achieved a reasonable amount of success in one thing, whether that's like, oh, well, I was really good at um, something in school, but now I'm out in the real world and I'm trying to do this other thing. I think it's very, very impactful tr for transitionary moments. And I think a lot of us are going through transitions right now. So hopefully that helps. All right, next up is direct answer. This is where you folks send me a direct message, and I do my best to answer in a way that might help the greater good. The first question, I'm doing two here because, you know, I'm stoked to share my answers as always because these solo podcast episodes haven't been going up as frequently, and I just like getting questions from you folks and helping you out. So this first one comes from uh, Javian M., What's up, Justin? I'm trying to work my way up the ladder at the club that I'm at. I'm thinking of submitting some dessert menus to my executive chef in a few days. I was wondering if you had any advice on how to work my way up the ladder and also present some menus. And so I gave him kind of like uh, whatever was fast for me to type, but I want to dive a little bit deeper here because I wanted to get him an answer, but then also, um, you know, expand here on the podcast. So I said, 
Learn as much as you can about what the next position in the ladder does. How do they measure their success? Then improve those skills in yourself and put your hand up for an opportunity. So for example, when I was at Lease for Kid as the lead line cook, the person that was quote unquote above me in the hierarchy was almost serving as like a junior sous chef style position. Like he would work stations sometimes, but then he would also do ordering and he would like kind of do some recipe development kind of stuff. And so that I saw that the the ability to manage people, like manage other people in the team and provide like strategic leadership, as well as like being able to talk to purveyors and keep track of the orders throughout the day was like the skills that I needed. And so I would start to ask questions on those different elements. And then as you start to ask questions, by you knowing what to do with those different tasks, sometimes you'll get those delegated to you if the person above you is a little bit too slammed or just doesn't want to do them, right? Because they say like, oh, Javian can do them. Let me just give that, give it to him. And then it's, you know, then it's no stress. So that's amazing. And certainly helps when the meeting of, oh, so-and-so is leaving next month. We need to bump so-and-so up. You then become part of that conversation. Because, and that other little bit there of how do they measure their success? So for the position that I'm talking about, it's like, oh, well, you need to make sure that you're ordering enough fish. You need to make sure that you're getting your produce orders in on time. You need to make sure that you're staying within food cost. You need to make sure that you're keeping track of different people on the lines as prep lists so that no one is behind when service starts. And so... All of those different measurement points then get you familiar with what are the either skills or like improvements that I need to make to make sure that I can rise to that occasion. And then, and the second part about the dessert menus, I said, print them out and send an email copy. Schedule a meeting with your chef to talk through them. Say you'd like to run a special of one of your dishes. And so that, notice the nuance in that where you print them out a copy and then you also email them so that they can look at them on their own time because some people just feel so bombarded at the work at work and you might catch them in a mind space where they're not ready to uh listen to your menu not that they don't want to listen to you but they just might not be in a place to give at like thoughtful feedback to the dishes that you're presenting during that time so you're emailing them so they can look at it on their own time but then you're printing them out in a way of like because it, doing that will force you to write it in a way that you want to see it done on a menu. Because what I what I used to not enjoy is asking people for dish ideas, and then I would have to do all this work on the back end to make sure that it read well on a menu. So if you can not just give them like, oh, these are the flavors I'm thinking about, here's how I want to present it, this is the bowl that I want to put it in, and here's how I want it to read on the menu, and then go one step further than that of like, I know that we're getting strawberries starting next month, and if I can do this cake, I've costed it out. So this is how much it's going to cost. Is it cool if I run this as a special next week? And then notice in that, because you need to get the cost for the brown sugar and the vanilla paste and the, you know, the eggs, you then probably have to ask someone up in the ladder. So now you're asking thoughtful questions about, I'm trying to cost out a dish. And so then it's all going to start to meld together. But I think I'm wrapping all of that up with a bow of don't be afraid to ask for what you want. I hope that helps. Next question comes from Brandon R. The email was titled Staging in Another Country. 
Hey, Justin, I've been following your social media content for a while now, and I actually spoke to you a while back when I was still in culinary school. I'm currently in a position where I'd like to send emails out to different restaurants around the globe, specifically in Copenhagen and London, to stage and hopefully land a job. But I've hit a bit of an issue in that, is it a good time with all of this happening to send emails out to restaurants? And I also wanted to ask, how does getting a visa work, and if there's any advice I could give about the process? So the easy part uh, for me is is the visa, because it is so contingent on what that country's laws are, and if it's going to be a paid position or an unpaid position. And based on that, you can kind of work around, I know like certain restaurants will say like, oh, this is an educational internship. And so then you can apply for a student visa. And because you are committing to that restaurant for a certain amount of time, they will sometimes quote unquote sponsor, which means that they will tell the government that they are employing you. And then sometimes they'll also pay for the fees associated with that visa. And it is on a case by case basis. So you need to ask what their policy is for people that need to get a visa. And my workaround for this is like, sometimes if you really want to move to Copenhagen and you see yourself living there for like a year or two, you can move there, get a job at a place where you're already like overqualified, right? Like get a job as a, as a barista, right? And then you get your working visa from that position. You work there for three months and you're very transparent with them about like, I, I just need something to get my footing. And then you take that visa and you transfer it to a restaurant where you want to work at after that, Right. Because that also gives you like the ability to get yourself an apartment and, you know, slowly start to like you go to the bar and have a drink at that restaurant, make a friend with the bartender, etc., etc. Times are hard right now. In is it a good time to send emails? The advice that I gave to Brandon in my email back to him was this is the best time to network with people in a genuine way as opposed to thinking that every single interaction needs to be job-focused. And when I say that, I mean, like, um, I think I used the example of Relay. I was like, email Relay, see who you get in contact with, and just start to talk to them about, like, what's going on in Copenhagen? What dishes are you guys excited to bring back? Um, You know, like, ask things and network and truly bring value to those places in a way where you're not directly asking for a job right now because you don't know what they're going to be able to tell you. So you're better off doing the networking now when everyone is not completely slammed with emails in their inbox or Instagram DMs, or they just don't have time at the end of their day to answer their secondary email because they just worked a 14-hour day and it's done with service and they just want to watch Netflix. They don't want to answer your questions. This is the time to get in touch with those people. And maybe it's not an email through the restaurant's site. Maybe you'd like do a little bit of digging and figure out, oh, what's so-and-so's Instagram handle because they work at Relay or they're a sous chef at 108 and they happen to be dating uh, the pastry person from Noma, right? And then that's how you start to kind of like, and I, I, I use the word weasel very sparingly because I don't want you to be a schmuck about it I don't want you to um, trick people or brown nose I don't want you to do that but I do think that because of the way that things are people just have time to like connect with you and if you if you're a student right now like use a student card like hey I'm really like I just dove deep into your cookbook and I had a question about the um, roasted potato puree that Relay makes, I think. I think it's like a mashed potato 
it's like a potato puree, but they roast the potato skins and make a milk with that. And then they, and then you're like, well, could that work with sweet potatoes? Does the flavor still get impacted? Or I was thinking instead of doing roasted sweet potato skins, what if I did roasted kale and then it was like speckled, uh, dark green throughout the orange puree? Would that look good? Like, have you guys ever done anything like that? What happened if you, if you ferment the potato, like ask those kinds of questions because then you can connect with those people now and then when the time comes you already have a warm lead to these restaurants and then you can send your resume through does that make sense so that's my advice um i don't think it's smart to kind of spam people right now because one everybody is probably doing that two they aren't going to be able to give you an answer even if you have your like oh i'm going to be in uh paris on from may 14th to may 28th one that flight might not even happen and two uh, they don't know what their service is going to look like. Like they might want to prioritize paying their staff more than taking on stagiaires right now. So just be careful with all of that. Do I have updates for you folks? Um, it's been nice to continue to have things to do during this time. It's very strange that I haven't, I thought honestly that it would get to a point when I would like second guess a lot of stuff when I started to see this really start to ramp up I was like oh man I'm gonna but what really like what what I realized was that I've built the perfect amount of variety into my life and I, I wrote it down on a sticky note here because we did a exercise with our team the other day yeah so I, I wrote the importance of di diversification and having options because I've done my like my current work life is such that I, I told myself I wasn't going to fully commit to cooking in person for people 24-7. Like that wasn't going to be my main thing. And then it, it also flips to where I don't want my entire life to be producing content and YouTube videos and spending my entire life in front of a screen. Um, Obviously, one is like much decreased right now, but I have the ability to like we're still hosting virtual cook-alongs through Voyager's table and I'm doing cooking classes and um, I'm cooking at home all the time uh, just for Anna and us, which is amazing. But what I wrote down was my whys are solid. So like Simon Sinek's uh, start with why. I think that there's an inherent benefit to like in times of crisis going back to like, why are you doing this? And I think that all of us should take this time to ask that of ourselves. And if you're satisfied with the outcome, then you just need to sustain. And I like that word sustain a lot because a lot of people think that it's just like to keep going. But in the actual dif dictionary definition of sustain, there's something, there's a, there's a word, there's, let me just look it up because then I can read it and I won't be speaking out of my ass. Sustain definition. It is um, to undergo or suffer something unpleasant, especially an injury. And then there's another definition that is strengthen or support physically or mentally. And I think that the idea that it's going to be painful, but you're going to keep going is like, I take a lot of pleasure in that almost where it's like if it was easy any almost anybody could do it does that make sense um so i think we should all keep that in mind and don't do it for sake of just doing it do it because you find some other inherent either pleasure or satisfaction or fulfillment in the work itself and 
yeah, it sounds like it's it's been overstated and um, beat to death, but I really hope that you're well. I don't know how any of you truly are. <laughs> I think that that's like one of the weirdest parts of all of this is like feeling like I'm speaking into the void. Um, I really like getting DMs from you folks and hearing that, you know, you're you're listening or you're getting value from it or like you're having fun making a kit page of the gear that you wish you could cook with right now like that all feels really good and so I hope to continue this um yeah and I just can't wait for for more and I can't wait to like host the first meetup that we can when things get back to where we want them to be even though it's going to look a little different so with that I think the sentence I say now is roll the outro we did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram that is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now is normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here. Excuse me. Pardon me. <laughs>